Today, I enjoyed my conversation with Laura Gassner-Odding, a frequent contributor to Good Morning America, The Today Show, Harvard Business Review, and Oprah Daily. Laura is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of three books, and her 30-year resume is defined by her entrepreneurial edge as she founded, ran, and sold her own global search firm. We talked about Laura's book, Wonder Hell, why success doesn't feel like it should, and what to do about it, which helps you achieve more by navigating the stress, uncertainty, and doubt in your life. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Good morning, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Where I'd love to start is if you could give our listeners a brief bio about yourself in the event that they don't know you yet. Oh, well, my name is Laura Gassner-Odding. I am the author of three books, the most recent of which is the brand new Wall Street Journal bestseller, Wonder Hell. And I'm really excited to be here today. Well, let's dive right into that word, Wonder Hell itself, which is driven off of two sides of a coin that people don't often associate together. One is success. The other is the hell that comes with success often because it opens up so many doors and causes other challenges. Can you give a high level of why wonder hell? And then we'll dive into some of the components of it. Yes. Yeah, so we all, we, you know, we often talk about the idea of stress when things go wrong, right? When you're worried about where the next paycheck is going to come from, you're worried about making payroll, you, you just, you, you got too much on your plate, you're feeling burnout. We, we often talk about that, but we don't often talk about the stress that comes from when things are going well, when you sort of get everything you wanted and then you're like, oh no, now what? Right. So wonder hell is that space in between who you were yesterday and who through this success, whether it is a huge thing, you just sold your first business or maybe a small thing, you just sold your first tube of lipstick, right? There is this moment where you see this potential, this burden of who you can be in between who you were yesterday and who now you've just realized you can become tomorrow. And the hell part of it is how the burden of this potential sits on your shoulders and is like, hey, Clint, what you got for me? Are you going to live into this newfound potential that you didn't even know you had last week, last month, last year? Or are you going to let it pass you by? And what I realized when I found myself in wonder hell is that in this moment, you feel that hell just as exquisitely as your ego suddenly says, yes, I do want that. I do want more. I do believe there's part of me that can have and be more. So yes, it's wonderful and it's hell. It's wonder hell. And the interesting part is if we choose not to continue to grow, continue to take on that next challenge, it creates its own form of hell. And what, what you write is accepting your most recent success as a finite destination would mean there is also a finite limit to your growth. And all this does is steal the wonder and leave you in only the hell. And so a quick digression on that before I hand it over to you to expand on that for our audience is that's the, the whole reason I have this podcast I'm creating on social media is I was at a point in my career where I was told, hey, the bus stops here. There's no more room for growth in the business. And that's okay. But 
I don't want that to mean there's no more growth in your life, Clint. So I thought, well, why don't I do something on my own that allows me to continue to grow and expand my entire world and see what's out there for down the road, and then I won't be stuck in that hell that you talk about if we just stop where we are. Yeah, you know, so all too often we let other people's lack of imagination stop our ambition. And I, you know, I have found so many times during my career that there are people in our lives, whether they are parents, whether they are friends, whether they are bosses, whether they are colleagues, whether they are even mentors, who suddenly say to you, like, who do you think you are to have these dreams, to want to grow, to charge what you charge, to think that you belong where you think you belong? And it's not because we're not capable. It's because they simply can't imagine that for themselves, let alone for us. And we let other people's lack of imagination stop our ambition. And it is, I think, a great tragedy. Like, just think about how many people you have helped through this podcast. Think about how you've helped yourself through this podcast. And if you'd listened to that person who said, the bus stops here, that wouldn't have happened. And so I spent 20 years in executive search. It was my job to call the most successful people on the planet and recruit them away to work on behalf of my clients. And that sounds like kind of a hard job, except for the fact that despite all the success, which is why I was calling them, they weren't very happy, which is why they were calling me back. And during these 20 years of executive search, what I came to learn was that even people who are internal candidates who apply for jobs, but don't get the jobs end up leaving because the very process of interviewing for that bigger job means that they have to wear the clothes of that role, speak in the voice of that role, think in the mindset of that role. And once they've placed themselves in their brain in that role, they can't unplace themselves there. They can't unsee themselves there. So we have these moments in our lives where we imagine what else we could be. And just because other people around us can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. And the last thing that I'll say is this. The thing about Wonder Hell, which is amazing to me, the, the book Wonder Hell, this journey that I'm on of Wonder Hell that's amazing to me, is that every time I talk to somebody about it, every time I tell somebody about the idea, every time somebody reads the book, they hear me on stage, they come up to me afterwards and they're like, oh my God, I'm in Wonder Hell too. And it's like, yes, here's the conceit of the book. We all are in Wonder Hell, every single one of us. It is very hard to have evolved over millions of years to get to a place where we're not constantly thinking and growing and evolving and changing and iterating and innovating. That's basically DNA. So we are people who are constantly thinking about what's next. And I don't say this in a like bigger, better, faster, more, you got to keep crushing it, man. Like I don't say it like that. What I say is that how cool is it that at this age and at this stage, wherever you are in your own journey, you can look inside of yourself and see that there is another layer, another gear, if you want to take it. We are all constantly growing and evolving. And one of the things that I really want to zone in on you talked about there is when you talked about when we have the vision and we're dreaming big and we believe we know what's possible in our world, so many people who are close to us don't share that vision, don't want to go for along for the ride. Do you just keep building in silence and not waste the energy and time trying to convince them? because the results will eventually convince them and you just go it alone until they come along for the ride? 
I think it depends on the people. I mean, the the short answer is yes, right? The short answer is, is yes. The, the pithy answer is we have to stop giving votes in our lives to people who shouldn't even have voices, right? The problem yes. is that along the way, there are people who we have given votes to or people who have just had votes. Again, parents often are fall in this category. And I love my parents. My parents are wonderful people. They are incredibly supportive. But the last time I lived in the same house as my parents, I was 17 years old. I didn't have a fully formed frontal lobe. I barely had a frontal lobe. <laughs> so I would return the car late for curfew, empty of gas, but, you know, with the volume on the radio, you know, super high up. They would get in the car on Monday morning and it would be like be blared out and couldn't even get to work on time. And they'd be like, ah, oh, Laura, she can't get anything done. Right. So when I tell them I'm dropping out of law school to join a presidential campaign, when I tell them I'm leaving the White House, nobody does that to like go become an executive recruiter. I tell them I'm leaving that marquee executive recruiting firm to go start my own company. When I tell them I'm selling that company and maybe I'll become a professional speaker and write books, they think I'm crazy because the person who they know, who they really, really know is that 17-year-old girl who's still returning the car late for curfew. You know, I'm 52 now. They've watched me. They've watched me succeed in a lot of things. They've also watched me fail in a lot of things, but they've seen me pick myself up and be able to make it through. And yet they're still so worried that I'm going to get hurt because the last time they knew me, I was 17. So there are people in our lives who we give votes to because they've always had votes and we really should stop giving them voices. We should stop asking people for their opinion. We should stop asking people for their permission. We should stop asking people for their blessing when really we Mm. don't need it to move forward. I don't need my parents' permission, their, their blessing. I don't need that to move forward in my life right now. It's not like I'm relying them you know, on them for my allowance anymore. But yet we do it because we, we are, we are, we have been trained to want that. So they're, they're your family. Then there are the, the, the people who are kind of, you know, jealous, the ones that they see your rise and all they can see it through is the lens of their own stagnation. So, you know, we run into them at the coffee shop and they're like, oh, I don't know, good for you, you know, and you can tell they're not full-throated excited. And if they're your peers in what you're doing, even if you're not working with them, but they're a fellow entrepreneur, in my case, a fellow speaker and author, and they're like, yeah, good for you. That's a, that's, that's great. You feel their hesitation. And so when things start to go wrong, you're like, well, they're on the same journey. Maybe they know better. I'm not so sure. And then they're my, my, my favorite. They're the ones who were just plain scared. They're the ones who they cannot imagine doing it themselves. And when you see them, they say, oh, are you sure you should do that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure you should do that. That's too scary. And what they really mean is, I'm not sure I should do that. I'm too scared. But then the minute something goes wrong, the minute it gets hard, the minute we get rejected, we're like, oh, maybe this was too scary. Maybe they were right. We Even if in the moment we don't, on board their hesitation or their fear or their uncertainty or their doubt, it still sits in the back of our head like these little cancerous time bombs waiting to just explode. And then as soon as they explode, they take over. And then we're filled with anxiety and uncertainty and doubt and all of their crap becomes all of our crap. So what I like to do is I like to have a very, very like tiny, tiny group of people around me who I ask not for their opinion, but I ask for like, if you were thinking about this, what kinds of questions would you ask? I don't ask if they mm. think I should do it. I ask, what would their concerns be? What would their fears be? How big would they dream about this? What do they think could be possible? And when I get 
that information, then I, who know myself better than anybody else, can make that decision. The other thing I do is I do make sure that I put the biggest ass kicker I know in my sidecar and I make sure that they know just how big I'm dreaming. They believe in me. They see me. Sometimes they see me before I even see myself, right? They're the ones who are like, "Mm, maybe you should dream a little bigger. Those are the people who you should be asking for their opinion. But everyone else, you know, their opinion doesn't matter. Their blessing doesn't matter. Sometimes we just ask mostly because we want our ego to feel good that we're on the right track. We want to impress people who really don't matter. And all of that plays into the first stop we're going to take on Wonder Hell. We have three. We have Imposterville, Doubtsville, and then we'll get to Burnout City. We're going to start with Imposterville. And so for our listeners who don't know about imposter syndrome, can you clue them in at at a high level what we're talking about here, imposter syndrome, inner critic, and then we'll dive into a couple of the ways that we can overcome it. The rest they can they can get the book and dive into those other areas, <laughs> but we'll we'll tackle a couple together and and then we'll get over yes. to the doubts that we have to overcome next. Yeah, so Wonder Hell is built around an amusement park and like an amusement park you've got like Small World and Adventureville and so this is, you know, Imposter Town, Doubtsville and Burnout City. If you are thinking to yourself, I've done this thing, I'm in this place that I didn't think I'd get to yet. Somebody's going to find out I don't belong here. I'm so worried that I'm going to fail. People are going to see me and they're going to say, oh yeah, that's right. They didn't really belong here. That last success was as high as they were going to go. Welcome to imposter town because 70% of us have imposter syndrome. By the way, of the 30% of people who don't, many of them have this thing called Dunning-Kruger, which is a idea that was built by these two scientists named Dunning and Kruger who realized that the very people who don't have imposter syndrome, most of them are the ones who should. They are actually delusional. So if you don't have imposter syndrome, don't worry. You may not be one of those people, but for 70% of us, we have it. And here's the thing. When I found myself in Wonder Hell, here's what I did. I talked to a hundred different glass ceiling shatterers, Olympic medalists, startup unicorns, creatives, thinkers, philanthropists, activists, everyday people like you and me, because I wanted to find a way out. And what I realized was that all of these people they still had imposter syndrome, whether they were, you know, building their second billion dollar company, like think about that second billion dollar company, or they were at the top of a ski slope about to go down their next run, literally with a gold medal in their pocket from the last one, still had imposter syndrome. So welcome. Imposter syndrome is that moment when you, you feel like you don't belong. Maybe you don't deserve the success that you've had. Maybe people are going to realize that you are not good enough to be there. But here's the thing about imposter syndrome. Each time we rise to a level where we haven't been before, of course, we're going to feel like an imposter because we didn't think we'd get there. And everyone else in that room is feeling exactly the same way too. Whether they've climbed up the ladder already or they are on the ladder for the first time, each time you get to a new rung, you like, well, holy crap, this is pretty cool. But let's just think about the term imposter syndrome itself, like the gall of the term imposter syndrome. Like, oh, you're an imposter. You don't belong here. Maybe you should leave. Or you've got a syndrome. Are you feeling well? Maybe you should lay down, right? Imposter syndrome puts the onus of feeling like we don't belong on us, like we're the victims. But, you know, imposter syndrome was a term that was coined in the 1970s. And it was coined in the 1970s when leadership looked pretty homogenous. 
right? Straight, cisgendered, white, male, Ivy League college, et cetera. Like all of that, you know, the trappings of success. Well, for the most part, leadership doesn't necessarily look like that anymore. So of course, each time we get to that next level, we're in a place that wasn't built by or for people that look like most of us. So of course, we're going to feel like we have imposter syndrome. But for the people who I spoke to who were successful and happy, who thrived in wonder hell, they heard imposter syndrome not as this idea that you shouldn't be here, but as a congratulations that you've made it to somewhere you never thought you'd get to. So isn't it amazing? Mm. It's all gravy from this point on. So a, a, a rephrasing of not that I don't belong. I'm just, I just have this feeling because I've got somewhere where I deserve to get and it's new and it will go away as I play through it. A bit of a different way to look at it. Yeah. And it may not go away. And it's okay if you feel that way because you know, what I learned was that the people who had imposter syndrome, what they said to themselves wasn't, I'm not good enough. They just said, I'm not good enough yet. And so yes. that word yet was so powerful. What they said was, everything that I've done up until now has gotten me to this point. And all those things I did, I didn't come out of the womb knowing how to do. I had to learn. So every step of the way, I got to a rung that I didn't expect to get to, and I learned how to do the thing, which then got me to the next rung. Isn't that amazing? It's not that I haven't done it. I just haven't done it yet. I'm not, it's not that I'm not good enough. I'm just not good enough yet. Everything that got me to here won't get me to there, but everything that got me to here was now built a foundation on which I learned new skills. I was able to create more network. I was able to have confidence. I learned how to learn. So everything that got me to here created the foundation, which will get me to there. I just have to trust the process. And we'll jump ahead to the idea of dreaming in elephants and being ambitious. When you think about that and you have those big dreams and you are in that spot where it's new and you're just starting and you're not good enough yet, I find that a lot of people may say, I stopped too early. Instead of, as Bill Gates said, we overestimate what we can do in two years and significantly underestimate what we can do in 10 years. And part of that, I found personally, is setting the goal long enough and then just trusting that process. So even if I'm not good at podcasting to begin, I'm not going to assess myself until I hit episode 100. Yes. I'm not going to let myself be in the elephant graveyard of, or podcast graveyard as they call it, where podcasts get to episode 14 and they stop. Yes. And so there's hundreds or thousands of podcasts that have less than 14 episodes. Wow. So just saying to yourself, I'm willing to embrace the suck long enough to get good. And I'm willing to be good long enough to become great which yes. may take me a decade. Yeah. I mean, I heard a great interview with Ira Glass from This American Life. Obviously, you know, I mean, just phenomenal podcaster, one of the first big podcasters. And people asked him, like, how did you get so good at it? And he goes, because I allowed myself to suck for long enough to get good yes. at it. And, and I thought that was, you know, I thought that was so great. My favorite quote from Eleanor Roosevelt is this, we would worry much less about what people thought about us if we realized how seldomly they did. Like, people are not paying that much attention to your first 14 podcasts to be like, oh, yeah, 
Yeah, let's look at Clint. Let's let's sit here and watch him suck. Nobody is paying that much attention because we're all so worried about sucking ourselves that we don't actually look at anybody else. So we have so much time and space to suck in absolute anonymity before anybody even notices what we're doing, which is why we think everybody's an overnight success, because we don't watch the days and the weeks and the months and the years and the decades of hard work that goes into it. And so for me, I think that the liberation of anonymity because of the mass narcissism of everyone else is maybe one of the greatest things you can, it's one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself is just to know that nobody cares about you. Nobody's paying attention. None of us are that important. And then once you do start getting better and you do start getting noticed and you do start getting attention, by that point, you're good because that's the reason you're getting all the attention. So I just, you know, like, <laughs> let's just bathe in the mass narcissism that gives us this, you know, incredible anonymity, I think, for a while and trust the process. You know, when Michael Jordan went for the, the, the famous Chicago Bulls three-peat, I watched this great documentary, the way, uh, about him, The Last Dance. And in it, they said there was this interview with him where they were like, were you nervous? Were you nervous? Like nobody had ever three-peated before. Were you nervous? The pressure was on. And he was like, no. I trusted my skills. I trusted the work. I did the work and I knew when it came time, I could perform. I did the work. He did all that work for decades. So I think we just have to trust the process. And as you said, embrace the suck. Yeah. And, and when it comes to Eleanor Roosevelt's quote, we often refer to that as the spotlight effect. We think yes. we're in the spotlight. And in reality, one of the best lines I heard is we think we're the stars in every, everyone's movie when in reality, it's their movie and we're maybe a B credit extra. Yeah, maybe and, if we're lucky. <laughs> right? Yeah. So just remembering that. And so part of what we're talking about there, we're talking about this idea of dreaming in elephants. Yes. And so we alluded to it with our long time horizons, but can you share where that dreaming in elephants comes from? I thought it was an, a stunningly beautiful metaphor. And then taking that to, well, how should we think about our dreams and the life we want to build for ourselves? Yeah. So the Dreaming in Elephants comes from David Usher, uh, who is, uh, was the front man, well, still is the front man of Moist, which is one of the most successful bands to come out of Canada. And he was very used to creating ideas and melodies and lyrics out of whole cloth. But he didn't really have his big wonder hell moment until he decided to become a pioneer in the AI space. So one day he, as, as you know, the band was sort of taking a hiatus, he decided he wanted to get into artificial intelligence. And he had this dream that he could bring to life historical figures like Albert Einstein to have conversations about the theory of relativity with third graders. And he would walk into these meetings and he would talk to all these coders and he would just explain this idea to them about how it was going to work. Like Albert Einstein was going to like wake up from sleep and be like, hello, young girl, like, where are you from? Oh, you know, Poughkeepsie? Like, well, I live in, you know, Vienna. And like, just this whole conversation with them. And all the coders would like nod their head. Yep, yep, yep. Sounds good. Yep, sounds good. And then he'd leave the room and later he'd find out that they were like, what the hell was he talking about? So he dreamed these huge, big ideas. And by the time the ideas became reality, people had like nicked around the edges and taken a little here and taken a little there. And everybody tries to like small size your idea to, you know, reality size your idea that by the time it comes to fruition, you still want it to be something that's worthy of you, something that you're proud of. So if you start by dreaming in elephants, then by the time it becomes a reality, you know, 
maybe it's something that's still big enough for you. And that, you know, what he said to me, he goes, he goes, you know, it takes two years to gestate an elephant, right? So an elephant is pregnant for two years. A litter of puppy takes nine weeks. So puppy, litter of puppies, litter of puppies, litter of puppies, elephant still pregnant, right? So it's going to take a long time to create this idea that's big and that's worthy of you. But if you want to do something that's exciting, and that's fresh mm. and that's new and that's worthy of the effort you're going to put into it. We got to start dreaming in elephants. I love that. In another section you talked about in playing big, you pulled something from your book Limitless, which was the idea that a leader, a manager, a successful entrepreneur must think about three factors, profits, flexibility, and impact, and make decisions based on one or at most two of these factors. And what I found really interesting and piqued my interest was you said, it is impossible to start or run a business based on all three, but if you stick to your two main priorities, the third will eventually follow. What does that look like and how does it tie into the concept of consonants? Yeah, so Limitless is based around this idea of consonants, which is alignment, it's flow, it's where everything you are is manifested in everything that you do. And it comes from my 20 years in executive search, where I realized that the handful of people who I could not recruit away had this thing. They had the success and happiness. They had not work-life balance, but work-life alignment. They were, they were mm. waiting to be happy when they were happy now, right? They weren't following their passion. They were investing in their passion. They were just, they just felt different. They were unpoachable for me as a recruiter. And you know, I was pretty good at recruiting. I recruited away a lot of pretty successful people, but there were this handful of people. And I was, when I sold my executive search firm, I sat down and I was like, all right, this is the time I need to solve this problem. Why couldn't I get those people? Why couldn't I do it? And what I've realized is that they had this combination of four things, calling, connection, uh, contribution, and control in exactly the right amount for them at this moment in time in their lives. Calling, what is this? What is the... uh gravitational force that gets me up in the morning, the leader I want to serve, the cause that I want to, that I want to solve, a business I want to build, a family I want to raise, connection. Does the work I'm doing every single day, what's in my inbox, my to-do list, my calendar, get me closer to that calling or farther from it? Does it connect to what I care about? Contribution. How does this work contribute to the life I want, the lifestyle I need, the flexibility I'm looking for, the paycheck I want, the, how does this brand manifest my values on a daily basis? How does the work contribute to who I want to be? And then lastly, control. How much personal agency do I have to control how much the work connects to my calling and contributes to my life? So that's sort of the idea of consonant. When I left the big search firm, I'd had this sort of moment of rage where I realized that the work could be done differently. I was at an executive search firm where the way executive search works is you charge one third of the first ca uh, first year's cash compensation for placing the executive. And I was doing work specifically for mission-driven organizations. And what I realized was that if you place the chief strategy officer for the Ford Foundation, for example, that person's going to get paid like $300,000, which means as a search firm, we're going to make $100,000 off of that search. Pretty good. If I am doing an executive director for a local domestic violence shelter, that person's maybe going to get paid $60,000. So we're going to make $20,000 for that search. Now, as a peon at this executive search firm, who was I incentivized by my boss to work harder for? The $100,000 fee or the $20,000 fee? The $100,000 fee. 
But who needed our help the most? Who missed the money more? It was that executive director search for the domestic violence shelter, the $20,000 fake. And it just Mm. didn't feel like it worked for me as a human. I just felt badly about doing more work for the group who didn't need me as much and they didn't miss the money as much when I knew that this other organization needed me even more. And so I left and I started my own search firm that had a different business model that allowed us to give equal priority to both of these clients. Because for me, I knew that I wanted to maximize impact in the world. I wasn't able to maximize impact if I was incentivized only by you know the highest paying clients. I also knew that I had a six-week-old baby and we were probably going to have another child and I was going to be raising kids. So I needed to maximize personal freedom and flexibility. At that time, we were young. We were still happy, you know, eating ramen soup and idealism. Like I, I didn't need to maximize money. I didn't need to maximize profit. So I spent a lot of time. Now, I should say, I understand this as a strategy in hindsight. At the time, I didn't. At the time, I was just like, I want to do good in the world and I want to be able to like be there for my babies. Over time, what I realized was that because I was incredibly like myopically focused on maximizing these two things so that I could feel good in the world and I could be a happy human, we ended up being very successful. We grew 100% year over year over year until at one point I had 30 staff working for me and we were doing, you know, seven figures of business uh, every single year as we were growing high seven figures. I realized at that moment when I was sitting in a retreat, we brought all 30 people together. We were sort of, we lived all over the world. We were, we were remote before it was COVID cool. We brought all 30 people together to sit in a, in, in a room and do a retreat. And we brought in a Harvard business professor to uh, facilitate the retreat. And she started the day off by saying, okay, how many people do you think are the, the, the right number of people for this company? Let's do that as an icebreaker. And we went around the room again. We had 30 people. We went around the room and some people were like really cheeky, like 29. And some people were like 50 and some people were like 100. And by the time they got to me at the end, I thought to myself, that's a really dumb question. What are we trying to do here? What kind of business are we trying to grow? What do we want to have? Because if you tell me what we're trying to do, what success looks like, that'll tell you how many people we need. Because if we want to maximize impact in the world, that's probably 100 people. If we want to maximize freedom and flexibility, for me, that's probably one person. If we want to maximize our profitability, it may be something like 10, you know? So there are these moments where we're growing as a company where we have to make decisions about what we're actually solving for. And so often the success culture, the success world pushes down our throat. This idea of bigger, better, faster, more are the only definitions. You did a hundred thousand dollars last year, do 500 this year, did 500 this year, do a million next year, did a million. What about five? Well, maybe we don't want to run five. Maybe at $5 million, you're stressed. You're not sleeping. You're dealing with all the problems from all the employees around you. You've gotten to a point where it's like your systems are stressed, but you're, you don't have enough money to invest. So maybe the, it's $1 million, $3 million, and then seven is the place that you need to be. So we have to figure out what are we trying to solve for? And what I realized is that when I was myopically focused on impact and personal freedom and flexibility, We ended up growing so fast that by the time I sold the business, I ended up making more money than I would have if I would have stayed at that traditional firm. So I think you can pick one, maybe you can pick two, and you don't have to run your business only by those two forever, but certainly for a season of growth, for a, you know, your strategic plan for that, you know, that, that six months, nine months, year, 
and just make sure five years, just make sure that you're making decisions based on that so that you don't have this sort of success. You're not dealing with like whims of the market pushing you one direction or the other. So much to unpack there. That's a very long answer. I'm sorry. No, it's okay because I like it because what I'd like to chew on a little is this idea you use, what are you trying to solve for? I often tell people to ask themselves, what are you trying to optimize for Mm -hmm. in this particular season of your life? So there's two concepts I, I, I want to expand on a little further is choosing what to optimize for yes wrecking because this ties in later to when to burnout city Mm -hmm. is if we're not optimizing for what we want to optimize for and we're accepting hustle cultures do more in every area of our life it's impossible i can't wake up have my cold shower do my meditation go for my walk in sunshine do my social media Da, 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 and then go to work, do a full-time job, and have a family. I mean, right. it's just impossible. Yes. So what am I optimizing for? And then this idea that our life has seasons, and what we're optimizing for in one season may look different than another season, but what I might optimize for in this season could feed my ability to have what I want in that next season. So this is more thinking in elephant gestation years or dreaming big longer term horizon. Yes. I'm I'm willing to go hard for a season or two or a long season to have the exact season I want down the road, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I talked about having a six-week-old baby. Well, now that baby is just finished a sophomore year of college and the next baby who came a couple of years after is about to leave for college. So I'm about to be an empty nester. The way that I structure my time right now looks very different than how I'm going to structure my time in the fall. And in fact, the way I structured my time, you know, four months ago, as I was leading up to book launch and over the course of the last four months during book launch is all out 100% go, go, go. But my summer looks very much like I'm a failure because I don't have a lot of stuff going on on purpose. Then I come back to September when I'm an empty nester and I go hard again. So, you know, I want to make sure this is the sort of maximizing, you know, personal freedom and flexibility. But, you know, at this point, I'm not maximizing impact in the world as much. I'm maximizing personal freedom and flexibility and I'm maximizing profit. I want to make sure that the things that I say yes to, if I'm going to leave the house right now, you know, not right now, I'm in book launch, but over the summer when it's taking away family time, it had better be not just like, I'm going to make a lot of money. It's a full fee gig, whatever it is, but it's going to be a long-term relationship. It's going to lead to to things that are going to come later. It's not just about the money. It's like, how will this money turn into more money later? How does it make more sense to me? And if it's in a beautiful place and I can bring one of my kids along and we have a little like, you know, mom and son, like a couple days away, like, when I say, you know, maximizing profit, I say that as like very broadly defined profit in our lives. And then I come back into the fall and then I'm going, going, going again. But this allows me to make enough money, build a big enough platform, be able to grow who I am in the world and my notoriety and my followership and all of that stuff. Because by the way, P.S. Clint, that means that when I post about a cause that I care about, or I want people to donate to something, or I want them to go vote, or I want them to do whatever, I am now maximizing impact in the world, right? So yes. my ability to you know, focus on the first two, knowing how that will help me impact and grow the third, 
becomes part of that strategy. So let's shift because with all of that thinking and planning for the book launch this season, long-term view, a lot of that is in hindsight, someone's going to look at you and say, well, Laura, you got lucky so many times in your career. It's LGO magic. <laughs> right? So I what, get that. What? You just have LGO magic. <laughs> yeah, just magic. And, yeah. and it's overnight magic. So let's talk about how we create that luck and how we create that overnight success that you've had, which at first you talked about this idea that another author had brought these four factors that we can use to create luck. And I did get a little nervous and scared as an introvert that there may be some extroversion required in these four uh, factors. Can you take our listeners through what are these four factors and how can we use them to create the luck we want in our lives? and to overcome imposter syndrome. Yeah, I have to remember what they are. Um, it's, it's Dr. Richard Weissman who wrote a book called The Luck Factor. And there were things like saying yes more often, turning negatives into positives. So it's not failure. Failure is not finale. It's fulcrum. It's sort of where, where we learn and we grow. It's being having a sort of a positive outlook. Basically, what it comes down to is Believing that things are going to go well for you. So saying yes to trying new things anyway. That's sort of what it all, what it all boils down to. Now, like you, I'm a bit of a raging introvert as well. So I know that seems ridiculous since I, you know, make my living speaking on stages, but I talk at people. I don't have to interact with people. So it's sort of, it's very, you know, you get to have this conversation with an audience, but they don't say their part out loud. So you know, as Glennon Doyle likes to say, like, I love humanity, but individual humans, kind of tricky, right? So I get to work with humanity, but not necessarily individual humans. There's this great quote that I put in the book where she's like, I would die for you, but like, maybe not meet you for coffee, right? <laughs> so, yeah, 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 and I was yeah. like, oh my God, it's like she crawled into my soul and wrote those lines. So here's the thing. When we sit at home and we have hopes and dreams and we do the hard work and we think somebody's going to notice us, we are delusional. People are not going to notice us because again, refer back to 15 minutes ago in this conversation, everyone's too busy worrying about themselves. So we have to actually put ourselves out there. We have to say yes to events. We have to, you know, have the conversations, the coffee, you know, networking. We have to put ourselves out there. We have to try new things. We have to be extroverted. Now, as an introvert, I, I do this as a situational extrovert. So I think very hard about where I'm going to go, who's going to be there. I do some research. I don't try to meet everybody in the room, but I'm like, who are my one or two? Or maybe if I'm really feeling like I had my Wheaties for breakfast, like I'm really feeling ambitious, who are my three targets that I'm going to meet that day? And then I don't try to like do the whole pitch. All I want to do in that conversation is just get the next meeting, get the one-on-one -on -one meeting. Because by the way, the people who are there also have better things to do. They probably want to be home on the couch watching Succession or seeing their families about to go off to college or whatever the thing is. They want to get their one or two targets acquired and then get the hell out also. So the, oh, we don't have to go big before we go home. We just have to like get the next meeting. So I try to be like a situational luck tourist. I try to be like a situational extrovert where I do it like in the moment. But here's the thing. There are not people who are born lucky. There are not people who have LGO magic. There are not people who are overnight successes. They're just doing the work that we don't see. And often they're making sure that they're in the deal flow so that people do actually see the things that they're doing. There are moments where I'll go to an event and I understand that the purpose of the event, even if it's a workshop, is not necessarily to learn. 
It's to make sure that people see me there and see something that I just did so that they think the next time they get asked for something and they can't do it, they remember, oh, you know who was good at this because I just saw her tell me about a thing is Laura. I should refer mm. her. So we just, we put ourselves in the deal flow in a way where we show up more often, people see us. And as an introvert, my favorite way of doing that is just to give to others. So if I am somewhere and I have no idea what I'm doing, but I need to learn something. For example, the first time I had to write a professional speaking contract, I had no idea what it looked like. So I asked 40 speakers that I knew for their contracts. I took their contracts. I made notes about all of them. Here's how people handle intellectual property. Here's how people handle travel. Here's how people handle, uh, you know, deposits. Oh, by the way, here's one interesting thing somebody does. Most people do it this way. Three people do it this way. And I made notes because I wanted to write my own contract. And then I was like, you know what? I bet all those people could use it too. So I gave it back to all of the people. Like, here are all the notes. Anonymized, obviously, but here are all the notes. And because I did that, I became seen as somebody who was a giver, somebody who was knowledgeable, somebody who was organized, somebody who was professional. So when those people got asked for a referral, who do you think they thought of? Me. Genius. I love that. And, and it took and no and extra effort, right? It took no extra effort. I was already doing the work. So why not just give so many people hoard information? Yeah. Why not be a giver? Absolutely. And, and we're definitely going to talk about abundant mindset in, in a few minutes, but you hinted on something else there that I want to talk about first that ties to creating luck because you and I both have the same view on this one. And it's this idea of manifestation, often referred to as the law of attraction. The secrets. So, so <laughs> you and I highlight the same thing. Yeah, the law of attraction is great, but it has to be accompanied by the law of action. Can you talk a bit about how having our dream board, yes, there are benefits to it. There are psychological benefits to having the dream board, but the dream board alone is not going to create the luck. Yeah. So, right. So I've always thought that manifestation was complete and total nonsense, right? I was like, I've manifested the partner of my dreams. I've manifested the trip to Japan. It's like, no, you didn't. How could you possibly do that? We can't do it. So then I did some research because I was curious about how lucky people become lucky people. And what I realized was that it's not the act. It's not like the fact that you just wrote, like, I want to go to Japan and like beautiful, like, you know, glitter paper on your dream board. It's the actual act of writing it down signals to your brain. Your brain gets like 11 million bits of data every single second, and it can process 50, five, zero, 11 billion versus 50. We've got to help our brain a little bit. Like in this moment right now, listening to this podcast, you're hearing my voice, you're listening to intonation, you're, you're thinking about all of the things in your life that, you know, are that are, you know, you're resonating with the things that I'm saying and, and, you know, the, the, the soothing dulcimer tones of Clint's voice as he, like, inter you know, interviews his, his authors and his, and his thought leaders. You're also thinking about where your body is right now. You're thinking about the temperature of the room. You're thinking about what you're doing next. You're, you're, you're sort of feeling the, you know, the, the, the fabric on your shirt, right? We have all these inputs that are coming. So when we tell our brain, I want to go to Japan, it just gets lost in a billion different other things that are going on. But if we write it down on our dream board and we see it every single day, I want to go to Japan. We see like a beautiful picture of a pagoda, uh, pagoda and, uh, you know, great sushi and, you know, the lights of Tokyo. 
if we look at that every single day, we're training our brain to notice it. And so when a bus goes by and it has a sale half off flights to Japan, we see the bus. We didn't manifest the bus. We didn't manifest the sale. What we did is we told our brain of the 11 million bits of data you're going to get, that's one I want you to pluck out. So we're able to make ourselves luckier by being much more actionable, being much more active about the things that we want to do. Even better is if you take that vision board and you share it with somebody else and you have that conversation so that if they see the trip to Japan, like it becomes one of those things also. So it's not just you who's looking for you know, what you want to do. So if what you say is, I want the promotion, I want to learn how to be a public speaker, I want to write a book. Like you start putting these things there and you share that with a group of people around you who are part of what I call your family, right? Your combination of friends and family who really see you, who know you, who believe in you, who want you to get to where you're going to, you want to get to. When they see these things and they're like, Oh, I should call Clint because I just heard about this, whatever insert your, you know, next step is here. I love that. And the one thing I've found in a lot of successful people that I know that you hit on there is a high bias to action. So even without all the information or 100% of the answer, it's that consistent drive forward towards the goal that they see. One of the most interesting studies that I quote in the book, I mean, it's so interesting to me, was uh, by the guys who did Freakonomics. And what they learned was that if you are stuck, you are totally stuck, you're indecisive, you have no idea what to do. Should I leave my spouse? Should I you know, go for the promotion? Should I buy the house, right? Like whatever the big giant decision is that you're trying to think about. People who flipped a coin and the coin said heads do it were happier years later than people who flipped a coin and the coin said tails don't do it. And they were happier even if the decision in hindsight was not a good one. So they said, I shouldn't have left the spouse. I shouldn't have gone for the promotion. I shouldn't have bought the house. They're still happier in in hindsight that they made a decision and they did something. I thought that was super fascinating because even in making the wrong decision, they learned things about themselves, which gave them other opportunities right? Like maybe I shouldn't have left the spouse, but if I hadn't left the spouse, I wouldn't have you know, met this group of friends and I wouldn't have traveled to Japan. And that was the greatest trip of my life. And when I was there, I met somebody who said, you know, you really should write a book about this experience. And then I did. And there I am. And now I'm speaking. Right. So it's like, even if we have left turns and right turns and U-turns, and if some of those turns are wrong, they lead us down other paths. Like no path is final yes. until, you know, the yes. end of the day, right? So that's, that's right. why I say like growth is never finite. Like you're never at the end of your road until you are at the end of your road, right? There's only one final decision and that's the end. So, you know, this idea that action beats stagnation every day of the week, again, this is another liberating thought for me. Like when you're in wonder hell and you're like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, just do something. And by the way, even if the something is, I'm gonna sit here for a specific period of time and collect more information. You're Mm. never going to have a full data set. But if you're like, I'm going to just for the next 30 days, not do anything, see what else comes along and then make a decision on date certain, that's still action, even if that action is staying still. But we have to be active participants in our lives or else we're just passengers on someone else's bus. Yes. So uh, let's keep 
our action moving us through the amusement park. We've been to Imposter Town. Let's get over to Doubtsville. So what does Doubtsville look like for our listeners at a high level, Laura? And then we'll dive into some of the doubts that people are dealing with and how to overcome them. Yeah, so Doubtsville is in that moment of it's amazing, it's exciting, it's wonderful. And also, I've never been filled with so much anxiety and dread and uncertainty and envy and exhaustion and doubt in my entire life. Like, I don't even know who I am as this new version of me. Ah, right? This hell of the tsunami of emotions that come at us. And what I learned from the people who I interviewed was that they were masters at renegotiating the relationship with these emotions. So they didn't see uncertainty and doubt and dread and they didn't see it as limitations saying, stop, don't go forward. They saw them as invitations saying, cool, man, like you're on the right track. So they were able to change the voice inside their head that said, oh no, you haven't done this before to, oh wow, you haven't done this before. So they knew that doubt was not a thing to stop them, but was actually a thing to say, cool, that's great. You've got doubt. That means you can gather more data. You can keep moving forward. It will all become clear eventually. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing so far and want me to be able to get your favorite guests on this show, please do me a quick favor. Subscribe to the show and leave me a rating. The 30 seconds of your time will mean a ton to me. And so that first part is we're going to have uncertainty. We're going to have be uncomfortable because this is new to us. We're at a new stage of life. And the idea that we need to learn to become comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. What does that look like for you? And what does that look like for our listeners? How can they take these baby steps to become comfortable being uncomfortable? So I ran the first mile of my entire life when I turned 39 years old, like of my entire life. And at the end of that mile, which by the way, took me six weeks to run, I was like, well, you know, if I string three of those together, maybe I could do a 5K. And at the end of that 5K, I was all hopped up in endorphins. So I was like, you know, if I string two of those together, maybe I could do a 10K. Now I say do not run because they were definitely do and not run. <laughs> it was To call them running would be an insult to runners. But at the end of that 10K, I was like, well, if I string two of those together, maybe another mile or so, I could maybe do a half marathon. And this was obviously like six weeks and then eight weeks and then a couple of months. Like it took a long time to get to that point. But I live in Boston, you know, where this goes, one of the homes of like the major marathons of the world. And I'm not training for my sixth marathon. But if I had woken up that first day and said, God, you know, I feel like crap. Everything kind of hurts. I haven't exercised in two years. Maybe I should like go for a walk. If I had said, I'm going to run a marathon, let alone five, no way could I have dreamed that. Like we all have this like, if you can dream it, you can do it, which is just garbage. If you do it, you can dream it. Like where do people get confidence from? Like the confidence to dream big dreams. It doesn't come from just waking up one day with LGO magic, Clint magic. It doesn't, you don't just wake up like fully formed and I can do anything. You wake up one day and you say, I'm going to do this small thing. I'm going to lower the bar like so low to the ground that I have to slither under it. Like I'm going to lower the bar. I'm going to go walk for five minutes. Like that's it 
right? Anybody can walk for five minutes. After five minutes, the next day you walk for 10 and then you walk for 15. And we, we get confidence by showing ourselves competence. Competence yes. leads to confidence. That's how we do it. So it's not if you can dream it, you can do it. If you do it, you can dream it. And by the way, to go back to what we talked about originally about people whose lack of imagination halts our ambition in its tracks, the reason that we are able to hush those voices is because we are able to imagine 10 miles after we've run five miles, but we can't do 10 if we've only done one. So we show ourselves the competence that we have to hush those other voices because we can see the next step, even if they can't. So, you know, there's this moment in running marathons at mile 20.1, where you don't know what's going to happen, right? Like the farthest you run in marathon training, 26.2 miles. The farthest you run in training is 20 miles. And then you start to taper and you get ready for marathon day. And whether it's your first marathon or your 50th marathon, you get to mile 20.1 and you're like, I wonder what happens now. Like, I have no idea. Am I going to finish? I'm exhausted. Everything hurts. I'm chafing in all the wrong places as if there's like a right place to chafe. And you don't know, maybe that day it's hot, maybe that day it's raining, maybe that day it's freezing, maybe there's a headwind, maybe there's a tailwind, maybe you're having the run of your life and you're like, am I going to have a PR? Or you're like, am I even going to finish? And we have to make that decision in that moment, every single step for the next six miles. Am I going to do it? How am I going to do it? What is it going to look like? And so, you know, the way that you get through it is you say, okay, well, I've done this before. I've run a 10K. I know I can run a 10K. I'd gone 20 miles. So like, I've got it in me. Even if I walk, I'm going to feel like run. Great. Yes. Walk. Fine. Crawl. Okay. Whatever. Like there's no, you know, like you get the same medal for coming in last as the person who comes in second. Right. So like we have to remember that in these moments of doubt, when we have no idea what's going to happen, we just have to you know, lean back on everything that we put into that moment and know that we can get there. It may not look like what we thought it was going to look like, but we can still get to what we want to get to. And in those six miles, that's where the lessons come. Yeah. And and I often refer to it, Laura, as this idea that we're building our get shit done muscle. Mm -hmm. And, And for a lot of young people out there, I say one of the easiest ways to build that is through athletics, is yes. through marathon training, Ironman training, ultra marathon training. Because when you do these things, you teach yourself, I am the type of person who does things that the average person isn't willing to do. I am the type of person who completes hard challenges. And you don't start with the Ironman. You start by getting a pair of running shoes and doing a little jog around the block. So you start as small as possible and you teach yourself every time you take that incremental step up, I am the type of person who completes things. I am the type of person who has an end goal and brings it back to today and then gets it done methodically over time. And that teaching can be applied eventually to anything you want in life. I've learned so much about myself through athletics that I just never even, I never even knew I was capable of. The last marathon I ran was the New York City Marathon and I sprained my ankle at mile four. I just literally fell over my own two feet, sprained my ankle. And I heard like pop, pop, right? Like a couple of, you know, not not such a good sound that you want, that you want to feel, that you want to hear. 
And I, you know, popped right back up and kept going because, you know, there were thousands of people running behind me. I was going to get trampled if I laid on the ground. And I remember just feeling so much pain and seeing stars and looking around for like a medical tent. And there wasn't a medical tent right there. So I just kept going. I like walked at first and then I started to jog a little bit. And the friend that I was running with, they're like, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? And I was not sure I was okay, but there was nowhere to go. And we were in Brooklyn and our, oh, you know, the finish lines in Central Park, right? Like yes. our, we were, we were staying near Central Park. Like I had to get back there somewhere. And all I did is I looked around and I just saw hundreds of people on the sides. And I was like, there's no, like, I can't find a, I'm not going to find a taxi here. I'm not going to find an Uber. Like I got to get back to Central Park somehow. Like I might as well keep going. And I kept going and it hurt. But as I kept going, I was like, you know, like walk it off kid. Right. It just, it's, <laughs> it, it hurt less as I kept yeah. going. And so I finished the marathon running 22 miles on a sprained ankle. And by the way, I finished it at a PR. It was the fastest I'd ever run. And I, that PR was 402. Now, again, I'm not a fast runner. So 402. That's good. I, I was really proud of that. And yeah. as soon as I finished, like I, I turned the corner to come down into Central Park and I was trying to do math. I was trying to do math and I was trying to figure out if I keep going at this pace, can I finally get that sub four that I've always wanted? Oh. But I can't do math on a good day, let alone yeah, after running yeah. 22 miles on a sprained ankle, 25 miles at this point. And so I turn the corner in Central Park South and I just can't keep running. Every part, like I was just searing pain. Every part of me was just screaming, stop, stop, stop. And I walked a little too much and I finished at 402. And as soon as I saw the number, I thought to myself, well, shit, I got to run another one. Like I have to run another one. And I stop and I walk over to the side and I kind of like put my arms on the, on the little retaining wall. And I was just like, oh. And a guy walks over to me with a wheelchair and he looks at me, he goes, you need this? And I'm like, no, no, man, I'm, I'm good. And he goes, have you looked at your ankle? And I look at my ankle. My ankle is like the size of a watermelon, but it looks oh, like a no. gigantic, like dark purple eggplant. And I look down and he was, and he looks at me and he points at me, he goes, you, and he points at the chair and he goes, here, he goes, you, here, now. And I sat down in the chair and I looked at my ankle and my friend who I ran with all the way to mile 18 came back to find me. And by the way, she got a 355. So we're in our 50. She qualified for the Boston Marathon on that oh day. I kept my gosh, up with her till mile 18. And then I was like, just go, leave me, leave me. And she was like, are you okay? And I was like, no. And she's like, I mean, I meant physically, but I think mentally, are you Okay. But I had taught myself over the course of the four previous marathons that I could do hard things. Because it turns yes. out that the hard thing about doing hard things isn't the hard, it's the do. It's the just doing it. Like the fact yes. that I was already going meant I could keep going. That's right. It's not the it's not the hard, it's the do. Like momentum really counts for a lot. And so have you started planning an ultra marathon yet? Have you been bitten by the bug of going that little extra? I haven't. Know? I haven't. No? Okay. I okay. Actually, I hate running. I hate every single step of running. I hate training. I hate all of it. <laughs> but I love having run. I love yeah. having run. Like I never feel as good as I feel when I've run. And, and for me, the look on somebody's face when I say, oh yeah, I have an 18 mile training run this weekend is fine. I don't need the, like, I've got a 50 mile training run. I don't. So here's what we're doing. I've now run Boston 
three times. I run New York. I run Chicago. I'm a charity runner. I don't qualify. Like I, you know, I run Boston as a charity runner. But we've now signed up for Berlin for September, which means that now we have to do London and Tokyo also because those are the six majors. And on this past weekend, we're running our seven mile run because we're like right at the beginning of training. The marathon's not till the end of September. And my friend says to me, like, we're six and a half miles into the seven mile run. And no matter how far you're running, if you're running seven miles or 50 miles, that last mile feels like you can never run another step. Like it just like this week we'll run eight, but the seventh mile will feel hard. The sixth won't feel hard. Like it's just like a mental thing, a mental burden. And she says to me, you know, they're considering making Sydney another one of the majors. And I just looked at her and I went, fuck you. (laughs) 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 And that was my response. I was like, no, like I can't. But when she was like, we're going to sign up for Berlin. I'm like, yeah, we're signing up for Berlin. That means Berlin, London, Tokyo, right? Like we just, I think we all have these ideas in our head of like what complete looks like. And for me, like the end of the chapter of marathon running looks like I've done the world majors, done, complete, next thing. I never have to run another step again. Like what's the next thing that we're going to do? So to go back to Doubtsville, right? I think a lot of the people who find themselves in Doubtsville, they are very good at being able to define what perfection looks like. They're able to define what complete looks like. And they were able to give themselves this longer time horizon, this gift of learning. Like I know that by the time we get to London or Tokyo, I may not be able to run anything near a four-hour marathon. I'm just going to be in it to finish. But the idea that like I've done the thing, that's all I need. I don't need it to be. And each one I did faster until eventually I BQ'd like Boston qualified. Like I don't need it to be that. Like I know in my mind what success looks like. And as long as I'm clear on that, that I don't have to worry about this sort of perfectionist need to drive towards external goals. I can be intrinsically motivated by my own. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to challenge you on a little too, because, you know, when you were being a little self-deprecating with your running, but if you're seven minutes off a BQ time, you're a runner. You're not just running. You're a runner. So so, so there's imposter syndrome in there. You it's know what I mean? Funny. Well, like you're close. You're getting I know. there. It's just that I look so ridiculously horrible when I run my husband. Yeah, Sometimes we all do. It's funny. My husband's like, I just don't understand. He goes, every time I see you running, <laughs> you just look like every single step hurts. And I'm like, because it does. That's like, what running is. I go out on, on Boston on Marathon Monday and I see these Kenyans flying by and I'm like, yeah. they just, they don't even touch the ground. They're just, they glide. And I'm like, how do they do that? Like I am like a Clydesdale. I'm just like, Pathunk, pathunk, or really, it's like pathunk, pathunk. <laughs> yeah, I'm slow, and I've downloaded you know all the playlists that are 180 beats per minute, so I can like keep going at a certain pace. And oh, it's just it's horrible. But here's what I learned about it: that each one of us needs to get un- we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable, and that discomfort yes. looks like the very depths of our pain cave. Now I write in the conclusion of the book, I tell a story about the first time I ran Boston and it was 92 degrees. I didn't even know my own name, you know, by the time I got 10 miles in. By the time I got 16 miles in, my husband had given me Ziploc bags full of ice. And by the time I got to miles 16 or 17, I saw a friend on the course who pointed to my jog bra and pointed to my, my ice in my shirt and went, Wow, that's a great idea. And I looked down and I was like, how'd these get here? Like I just, (laughs) I was, it was unsafe. It was not good. 
I get to mile 18 at the, the bottom of the last of the hills in Newton. And so this is Heartbreak Hill, very well known because it's where people break. It's your heart gets broken. You just, you lose everything. And I see a friend in the Newton Center who holds up his phone. The phone says 92 degrees. And he says, Wesley Career just finished. Okay, I still had at least an hour and a half to go. And this man, this incredible marathon runner had just finished. Not only had he just finished, he finished only 10 minutes off his time the year before in perfect, like 50 degree overcast yeah. conditions. It's 92 degrees and full sun. I had passed previous year's winners on stretchers along the way on these hills of Newton. Like it was just people had IVs and arms. It was like a war zone, bodies littered everywhere. It was just terrible. And I realized as I was coming over the top of Heartbreak Hill, going down into Brookline where you're like, okay, I've only got mostly like downhill or flat to go. I can, I can imagine it. I live here. This is my home territory. I know what it looks like. I'm going to do it. I get to one mile out. Fenway Park is one mile out to the end. And I have this moment where I'm like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a marathon or I'm getting emotional just thinking about it now. I'm, I'm going to run my first marathon. I am going to, I'm going to get across the end and somebody's going to put a heat sheet around my shoulder and a, and a medal around my neck. Like I'm a freaking superhero and I'm going to be a marathoner. And what I realized was that it took everything I had in me to keep going, everything yes. I had to push to the end of that pain cave and to get so comfortable being as uncomfortable as I've ever been in my entire life. There was a woman in front of me and I was kind of pacing myself off of her. She was running step, step, step. I was running step, step, step behind her. And we get to the point where you're about to turn onto Boylston Street. So you've gone underneath, you know, uh, you've made the, the right on Hereford, you're making a left onto Boylston and you're on the dance floor. There are people hanging out of windows on, you know, in all of the, the, the office buildings. And it is, you're like a half mile from the finish and people are screaming so loud that no matter what volume you have your headset on, you cannot hear a thing. And it is just a party. And the woman in front of me and people are like six people deep, like against the barriers on the sidewalks. And the woman in front of me looks at a cop, the policeman standing there and says, I'm done. Let me out. And he's like, you're almost finished. And she's like, I'm done. I can't. I'm done. You had let me out. Let me out. And she argues with him. And I look at her and I'm like, I'll carry you to the finish. Like we're almost done. And she was like, no, I'm, I'm done now. I'm done. She was so heat stroked. She just didn't even know. So he let her out and she finished. And I wish I had like written down her number or something. I wanted to give her my medal. We're in these moments that I realized that Wesley career had gone to the very depth of his pain cave in order to get to the finish the way yes. that he did. And I was getting to the very edge of my pain cave to get to the finish in the way that I did. And even though our pain caves looked very different from each other, being at the very depth of our pain cave feels exactly the same. And Laura, as you talked about that, something that's going to come up, the listeners who are listening, they're hearing all of the hard things you've done. They know some of the hard things I've done. And they're saying, you two must be super motivated. <laughs> and it's not about the motivation. It's about the accountability. Can you talk about how we use accountability to drive forward, not motivation? Yeah. So this is where I get to tell you as somebody who makes my living as a motivational speaker that I think motivation is bullshit. And here's why. As I mentioned, I hate running. I mentioned my running buddy, the same running buddy who, you know, 
got her BQ, the same running buddy who told me that we're going to have to run Sydney, maybe. I have a running buddy. I don't run alone. I hate running. So if I am going to get up and it's five in the morning and I need to run 10 miles and it is snowing outside, I'm not going to do it. I will break a promise to myself every day of the week. But if we have to go run and it's, we have to run 20 miles and it is gross, sleeting, awful, freezing rain, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it every day of the week because I won't break a promise to you. So if I'm needing somebody else, I always do it. So for me, Motivation means that you have to wake up every day, dig deep into that imaginary well of motivation and find some reason you want to do it. I can't do that. I can't do that in any kind of sustained way. But if I know that I have to show up for you, I'm never going to break that promise. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that I like to find the biggest ass kicker I know and put them in my sidecar. For me, it's this running buddy. Like, I won't let her down. I won't let her down. And when we run, it's almost like a challenge, like internally, like we never speak it out loud, but at some point, one of us says, I need to stop and I need, I need a walking break. But we try to push each time so that we're the, we're the last one to ask. So, you know, I don't want to let her down by making her walk earlier. She doesn't want to let me down. And so we push each other a little bit harder each time to show up as our very best selves. When did you realize or develop this accountability mindset? And was there something you did that shifted, that created it, that our listeners can say, okay, well, if I want to stop wishy-washy motivation is my driver, and I want to move to an accountability mindset, what are some things they should be thinking about to develop that? Yeah, you know, I was actually just having this conversation with my 20-year-old son this weekend, who was saying that, you know, he was thinking about taking social media off of his phone. And when I asked him why, he said, because I wake up in the morning and if I don't have to get to class or if I don't have to meet somebody or if I'm not, you know, driving my girlfriend to, you know, work or whatever it is, I just lay in bed and I scroll social media. And then the next thing I know, an hour, two hours, three hours has gone by. I didn't get to work out that day. I end up being late for class. Like he, he was talking about how if we're, if he doesn't have a thing to do, then he just gets lost. And I realized to myself, I realized, and I said to myself, like, God, like I'm 52 years old and I do exactly the same thing. Like if I didn't have this podcast to wake up and do, I don't know. I'm not so sure I would have gotten much more done this morning. Like this, it got me up. It got me going because I was here because we're doing video. I needed to make sure I showered because I needed to get that shower in and do my makeup. And I have podcasts all day today well, this is the only time I'm going to work out. So like, I got to get my workout in because I'm not going to do in the middle because I'm not going to shower and do this whole rigmarole hair and makeup thing again. So, you know, sometimes having that early accountability in the morning helps get us going on the day. And then once we're going on the day, things are good. When did I realize it? I realized it probably when I was training for that very first marathon and I would meet the the charity team every weekend for the long run but I wasn't doing all those midweek runs that like get the miles underneath. And what I realized is that if I didn't start doing them, I was going to get hurt. And, you know, for me, marathon running isn't about being the fastest I can be on marathon day. It's about just completing the marathon, which means that I need to get to marathon day uninjured. I can get injured during the marathon, no problem. Who cares how I'm walking the next day? But I have to get to marathon day uninjured. And the only way to do that is to do all those midweek runs. And so I started to just ask people in this marathon group, hey, when are you running your six miles, your seven miles, your 12 miles during the week? And I would just show up when they were doing it. I'd be like, great, I'm going to be there with you. 
So I've realized that when we set these giant goals, these things that are bigger than us, the only way to get to it is to do the baby steps in between. And if we cheat on the baby, the baby steps, we can't cram for the test. Like you can't cram for the marathon. So in order to do the work, like Michael Jordan, right? I trusted the work. We have to do the baby steps in between. And the only way to do that is to have like date certain deadline person at your meeting. You might be somebody who is incredibly intrinsically motivated to do all the baby steps in between, but you would be a unicorn. That's pretty rare. Yeah. So you're setting that big goal. You're marching it backwards and saying, well, if I actually want to achieve the goal I set for myself, I have to do these things every day. So I will show up. I will do the work and that's how I'm going to get there. Which again, for the listener, anything you want to achieve in life, that's the recipe. What do I want in the future? What's it going to take? I'm going to show up and do the work every day until I get there. Yeah, the the best way to get better at anything is to shut up, show up, and do the work. It's just, it's so unglamorous, but that's it. Shut up, show up, and do the work. I like it. I'm going to write that one down for (laughs) sure. And so you already talked earlier about abundance. What does abundance look like for you contrasted with scarcity? And how does that help us overcome our doubts? Yeah, I mean, so abundance looks like when I took all of those speaking contracts and I handed it out to everybody, like, here's how to do it. Like, here's the, here's the playbook. Here's how the 40 smartest people I know do this work. I could have kept it to myself. I could have said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give it to anyone else because I want to figure out how to do it, but I don't want them to do a good job because I, they're my competition. But what I realized, you know, I have a good friend who's also a speaker. His name is Scott Stratton and he's a fan of talking about how we don't take ladders to the top, we take elevators to the top. And on the elevator, there's room for all of us. And the more people you pack into your elevator, you know, we all the boats rise together. And so what it looks like for me is every time I have somebody who has a book coming out or who's giving a talk or who has a media hit, I talk about it. I put it on social media. I could only just put my own, but I might as well put everybody else's because when, when I have something, they put it up there. I think that there are people who like stand in the corner and they keep score and they watch everybody else and they they take for themselves and they they are very scarcity minded they think that success is like pie there's only so many slices to go around but the truth is it's not the more that we contribute to each other's success the more success there is to go around and i think frankly i think success is contagious so if we're around people who are successful if we help them they help us we all do better together and so I try, I try very hard to burn the bridges in my life with people who tend to be repeated scarcity offenders. If it happens once, fine. If it happens twice, fine. But after a certain amount of time, you realize that you can keep giving and giving and giving, but that person is not only not going to be giving, they're going to be taking. And that's just energy that's literally taking away from you being able to give to other people. So I like to, imagine that, you know, there may be a group of people that I give to, some of whom will never give back to me, but just the very process of giving reminds me of who I want to be and how I want to show up in the world. And it shows other people the values that I hold dear. And the more that I manifest those values, even if it never comes back to me, the more I act as the person who I want to act as. And by the way, this is called your fundamental state of leadership. The more that you can act like the person who you are when you are at your very best, 
What are the muscles you're using? Who are the people surrounding you? What are the words you're using? What's the energy? Like, what are you wearing? How are you acting? How are you in your body? What are you thinking? How are you feeling? If you write those down, like think about a moment where you crushed it. Maybe it was a public thing. You were on stage. You were doing a great presentation. Maybe it was private. Maybe you were crunching numbers for a presentation in the back room. Maybe you were helping a loved one or a colleague through something that, you know, a really hard situation. You were your very best version of yourself, whether it was public, private, loud, quiet, doesn't matter. Who are you when you're the very best version of yourself? And write mm. down that person, write who that person is and put it on the lock screen of your phone, on the bathroom mirror, on your, your car steering wheel. And try to act into that person every single day. Because the more you act into that person, it's not fake until you make it. It's just know who you want to be and just be that version of you that, you already yes. are more yeah. often so that it becomes your fundamental state of leadership every single hour of every single day. Absolutely. And what I often suggest to people, Laura, is if you're in a room with other leaders, you, you can pick one of your favorite traits from every one of them and say, what's a trait I see in Laura that I want in myself? Yes. And I'm going to copy that trait. Yes. Until that is me. Yes. Not to your point. I'm not, I'm not going to fake it, but right. I'm going to act yes. in the way that I appreciated in Laura until I act like that without even thinking about it. I'll be conscious right. about it for a certain amount of time. Eventually people will just say, Hey, you're very similar to Laura in this capacity. And that's when you know, Oh, well, that worked. Yeah. I mean, I interviewed. I interviewed somebody for Limitless, a uh, guy by the name of Larry Fish. And Larry was the CEO of one of the biggest banks in New England. And he said to me one day, well, actually, he didn't say to me, I, I, I did some research and I saw him give a speech at MIT where he said that he starts every single day by writing a thank you note to one of his employees. And when I went to interview him, I was like, Larry, every single day, a thank you note? Like, how do you do that? And he looked at me. He looked at me and he said, Laura, I have a thousand employees. If I can't find something to be grateful to one of them for every single day, I am not doing my job. I am not paying yes. attention. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, it's so smart. Now, I don't write a thank you note every single day, but I remember thinking, I need to be more grateful. Am I faking gratitude? No, of course I have gratitude inside of me, but I'm reaching into the gratitude part of my persona and I'm saying, hey, you, we need to raise the volume on this part of you. And so I live in the world now, these, whatever, seven years later after interviewing him as a much more grateful person. I'm not faking it till I make it. I just tapped into it and I developed it. I, I shined the sun on that seed in my personality until that part of me grew. Oh, I love that. And, and the other thing you talked about a few seconds ago that I wanted to highlight was this idea of, of cutting people out. And you, you phrase this in the book is, it's okay to unfollow people. And it doesn't only have to be social media. It yes. can be in real life. Yes. Which, and I know it's in doubtful, but that really does tie a little to burnout city as well. Yes. Because these, a lot of the, the energy, people, people may call it energy vampires. Yes. They just suck the energy out of you. And so you're saying, hey. I'm going to, I'm going to unfollow that, that energy pattern. Yes. Yes. So, you know, what's that old, that old expression about how we're like, we, we, we waste a lot of money to buy things we don't want to impress people we don't actually care about. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. Like we, we, we spend 
our money to buy things, but we spend our energy to be something that we're not so that we impress people who we don't actually care that much about, right? Like, and then we take their criticism, even though their praise wouldn't actually mean that much to us. So, you know, we're in the space that, that just makes no sense, you know, whatsoever. And so what I say in the book is like, it's okay to burn bridges. It's okay to unfollow people. There are so many people on this planet and several of them are people that you want to spend more time with, but you just say you don't have the time, but you do. The problem is that your time is being sucked up by all these other people who you don't care about. And you're so busy trying to impress them. You're so busy, like you're absorbing all of their energy. And the thing that I realized is in the interviewing that I did was that if you don't let those vampires suck your energy, they'll just go find other people's energy to suck. Cause that's what they need. Like their identity is being that person is being the person yes. who is the martyr or the complainer or the one who like, I work so hard and I never get recognized. Like they want to be that person. It makes them feel important. I prostrate myself to the gods of poverty or, you know, I work so hard, you know, on, you know, on behalf of this mission or that mission, or I work so hard to help these other people and they don't help me. Because they're, they, that's how they want to live in the world. Like they, they have identity from being needed and from being undervalued and all of the stuff. And, and that just like success is contagious. I think misery is also contagious. And so as we shift over to burnout city, you were just mentioning time there because they suck up our time. And when we want to avoid burnout, which is the last step in the amusement yes. park of wonder health. You say it's all about time as an acronym. What does that look like? What are you meaning there? Because, because what we're, what we're trying to avoid is that hustle porn culture of like, go, 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 more, 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 which just leads to us crashing and burning. Yeah. So this came from an interview I did with Jordan Harbinger. So another very successful podcaster and Jordan would interview these authors and these speakers, just like, you know, you're doing with me right now when they're right at this sort of height of their book launch. Or, you know, they just put out a course or they're, you know, growing a, you know, giant business. And he would interview them about these great successes. And they would say, man, like, this is a time that sucks. This is a time where I don't ever see my kids. These are the times where I'm exhausted and I'm living in hotel rooms and I'm eating cold pizza. And it's just, I'm, you know, living out of the mini bar. And when they would stop recording, they'd, be, they'd look at him. They'd be like, yeah, so Jordan, so like, where's your course? Like, when are you going to syndicate your show? When are you going to write your book? And he's like, nah, man, that sounds like it sucks. Like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, actually, exactly. I actually, like, I just interviewed you for an hour about how hard it is. Like, no, thank you. And he's got young kids. And what he said to me is that he realized one day that kids spell love, not L-O-V-E, but T-I-M-E. And what he realized was that there are only so many days and weeks and months and years where his kids are going to be like, Hey man, like, let's hang out today. Let's do something. He said, I want to be able to say to my kids, it's Tuesday afternoon. Let's like head down the road to Disney World. Like, let's like play hooky together. And he said, there's going to come a day when they're going to say, you'll fart. Like, I don't want to hang out with you. Like, dad, no, he's the least cool person I know. He said, but right now I want to have that. Like, I want to have that time. So going back to what we talked about in the beginning of the conversation, Jordan has made a decision not to maximize profit right now, but to maximize his personal freedom and flexibility so that he can be with his family. And that goes completely against everybody in the hustle porn world that's like bigger, better, faster, more, crush it, lean in, 10x. What he realized was he wants to lean in to being a dad right now. He wants to lean yes. into this moment in his life. But if he tried to continue to grow and syndicate and you know do all the stuff, 
He said, you know, I've never seen anybody as miserable as people who own private planes. He's like, they're so miserable because they have to like keep going and keep producing at the level because they're now trapped in this sort of hedonic treadmill where they have to just keep going and striving. And every time they hit, you know, one goal, like they join the country club, they look across the street, there's a bigger country club. And when they get to the bigger country club, they realize that at the bigger country club, there's a back room of like special VIP members. And you're going and you're going and you're going until one day you're sitting at work and you see your kid post on Instagram about being at the fancy country club that you can't even get to because you're so busy working that you don't even have time to enjoy it. And he just oh. didn't want to do that. And so, you know, this moment of wonder hell, when you see this potential of who you could be, I also want to remind people as we close out the book and the interview that there is, a, you can also say no. You can also say not yet, not right now. It's okay. You don't have to give the trophies back that you've earned along the way. You can just hold on to them for a little while. They're still going to be there when you decide to start hustling again. Yeah. And that, that was going to be my last question to you is what did that mean to you when you were sitting with your therapist and he said that line to you? Yo, I mean, you don't, I, you don't have to give the trophies back, Laura. So, you know, in the pandemic, like a lot of people, the stress got to me at a certain point and I just sort of stopped sleeping. And after a couple months of sleeping like three or four hours a night, my brain kind of stopped working. Like, again, I can't do math on a good day, but it, this, I got to this point where I could not even remember like how many cups of sugar went into the apple pie from the moment that I looked at the 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 recipe book till I turned around to like look at the sugar. Like I my brain just stopped working and I went to see this therapist and he diagnosed me very quickly as being an exceptionally boring overachiever who can no longer <laughs> overachieve. Like that was it. You are an overachiever who can no longer overachieve because I'm, you know, stuck here in the pandemic and I make my living getting on planes to go to events to speak on stages. Well, there's no planes, there's no events, there's no stages. What do I do? And he said, you know, well, we can work on that. And I was like, no, 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 man, I'm good. I'm like, I like being an overachiever. I'm type A. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like, ride my life like it's a F1 sports car. And he goes, yeah, but it's untenable. And I said, no, 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 I'm fine. It's like, it's a feature, not a bug. And then he countered with this, you know, absolute checkmate of a statement. And he goes, but you're here. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> You got me. Okay. You got me. I give in. I like, I like put the king down on the board. I was like, oh, you got me. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Laura, you don't have to give the trophies back. Like everything you've achieved up until this point in your life, you are still that person. I don't have to sell another book for the rest of my life. Listeners, please buy my book, but I don't have to sell another book for the rest of my life. And I will still be the Wall Street Journal bestselling author, Laura Gassner Otting. I don't have to give that trophy back. I don't have to keep hustling. I can now decide what do I want to do with that trophy that's interesting. Not that striving, but that's interesting. And so that to me, again, it's sort of this liberating moment to realize that we can choose at every wonder hell moment who we want to become next. And the only one who gets to choose is us. I love it. And Laura, we went pretty deep. We went pretty wide in the book. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to make sure you get across to the listener? I want to make sure that people understand that if you are sitting here and you're like, wow, I do feel this. I think I am in wonder hell. I would say congratulations because the only people who envision that next version of themselves are ones who are capable of becoming that next version of themselves. So Wonder Hell, congratulations if you're in Wonder Hell. I'm so happy that I'm not alone anymore. I love it. And I plan to be in Wonder Hell my entire life. 
I if can't wait. I, if the water's know, if fine, jump on if, in. <laughs> yeah, if you're not growing, you're dying. Yep. Is the way I, the way I look at it. And where can our listeners find you? So my name is Laura Gassner Odding. All my good friends call me LGO. So I am on all the socials at Hey LGO. So find me there. You can also go to wonderhell.com to uh, learn more about the book. Uh, you can take a quiz there to figure out if you're an imposter town, Doubtsville and Burnout City and what to do about it. Awesome. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much, Clint. If you like the podcast, you'll love our new newsletter, The Growth Guide. Every Thursday, straight to your inbox with the goal to help you be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Check it out at our website, thegrowth.guide. Subscribe and learn more.